Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Tracy Velt, Editorial Director of Real Trends. And today on Housing Wire Daily, I'm joined by senior real estate reporter Matthew Blake. We're going to talk about a brokerage technology, what agents think of Compass's platform, and the state of home building today. Matt, it's another week, another podcast. So um, I kind of wanted to start about out of with the, an article you wrote about Compass and their technology. You wrote that with um, real estate reporter Brooklyn Hahn. And the two of you really investigated Compass's tech platform, which, of course, um, you know, they are famous for being noted as a technology company. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what you discovered in that. Yeah, for sure. Um, hopefully it's sort of an evergreen article for like agents and stuff because it's sort of like, you know, what Compass has in terms of technology that might differentiate itself from other brokerages. And basically it's kind of hard to kind of move beyond the hype because Compass, you know, calls themselves a technology company sort of or kind of like a tech enabled brokerage now is more of like the term that they're using. And so I guess like the main takeaways I would say for agents out there is that the agents that Brooklyn and I talked to who use the Compass app found the Compass app to be very user-friendly. They found that it was very easy to sort of jump around between lead generation to administrative backend work to you know, even like title and escrow stuff that they found it to be like sleek, modern, user-friendly. But then the question is sort of, so what? And can Compass really like differentiate itself as a technology company if, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's an alarming time for Compass, as you can hear in the background, because they're losing a lot of money and there's a lot of layoffs. And so, you know, the question is, is that, is there tech? so good that real estate agents will stay at Compass, even if the real estate agents could make more money elsewhere. And that's like the kind of thing that right now I can speculate about, you can speculate about, but I think we will see in the next couple of years as to whether Compass, their tech is like so much better than the tech at Keller Williams, which has the command app. Their tech is so much better than EXP, which has the Verbella platform whether their tech is so much better that agents will stay there for less money. And, you know, maybe that's already happening. Robert Refkin said at a recent earnings call, agents are joining or staying on for like lower splits. So I don't know. I'm, I guess it's, it's just sort of a time will tell type situation. But I, w- I would just say one high level thing is just to reiterate the agents do like the tech. And I would just say it is more than just hype. They have invested a lot into this. And for agents, it at least makes some difference. It's interesting because I did ask that question in a recent broker edition of the Real Trends Daily. I asked whether agents stay with their brokerage because of the technology. And I asked brokers um, that question, too. And, you know, this is not a scientific, um, (laughs) you know, survey by any means. But the people who did respond to me absolutely said no. 
that it does not keep them there. And the interesting thing is a lot of agents said that they don't want to use the brokerage CRM because they're, they don't want their broker to keep their data once, once they leave or if they leave. Um, which I thought was really interesting because I do know, I know Keller Williams did this. I'm not sure of other brokerage firms, but I know Keller Williams has an agreement that they will give back all of their data, not keep it in their um, database, but give it all back to the agent if they leave the brokerage. So I'm sure that other brokerages have those agreements as well, um, but I'm not really sure they're doing a good job of communicating that information. But a lot of and brokers also said they don't feel that it's table sticks. They don't feel like they these agents are staying. There are there are some who definitely join because of the technology, um, of course. But overwhelmingly, um, you know what we found too is it's not always about the money either. So, what are they staying for? They're staying for a lot of different reasons. They like the brand. They like the relationship they have with their broker. They like the cachet that comes with with being with a certain firm, or maybe it's a dominant firm in the area. So it's it's an interesting question. And and at what point does you know most of these brokerage firms have technology platforms that are very similar? They're all trying to do the same thing. And one that nobody ever really talks about is United Real Estate. And I know that their CEO, Dan Duffy, has a deep, deep technology background. Um, and then their president, Rick Haas, has a deep knowledge of the industry. And they chose to build their own program. I think they did purchase one portion of it. Um, but they chose to build their own program before they scaled. So they did have some money and they did have some venture capital to do that. And it's and but they did it in a very careful and scientific, I guess, way to build their bullseye program. I don't know. I have not talked to agents about how they like it or don't like it. Um, but I think that they are very much under the radar for their technology platform claims that it is the only cloud-based program out there, completely cloud-based. I don't have a way to verify that at this point. But um, but I but I do think that even if you're building it in-house, you're still piecing together some parts from buying buying companies or, you know, usually they're not going third party. And what Dan says is that by doing what they're doing, their technology does not get more expensive as they scale. It actually gets cheaper. Um, if you're going with a third party, you're going to pay by the number of agents you have. So as you scale, your price goes up. If you're building it all in-house, your price goes down because you're not you're not being charged per agent. And agents are also paying generally. I don't know if they pay United a technology fee, but in a lot of brokerages, they pay. They do pay a fee. So I think it's really an interesting trend that we're kind of seeing brokerages struggle a little bit with their technology platforms and figuring out what is the right formula. And I think it's interesting that Compass seems to have figured it out as far as their agents are concerned. Yeah. I mean, I think that like when I hear about United Real Estate and they say they're the only like cloud-based platform or that kind of thing. It's like, well, wait, like eXp, like their whole brokerage is on the cloud. I think that 
you know, as a reporter, my eyes tend to roll a bit when I hear about like this, like HomeSmart is another example, like HomeSmart sent out an S1 at the start of January and they were like, these other real estate companies, they're archaic, but, you know, we leverage modern technology to help our agents, that kind of thing. And I think where maybe Compass maybe deserves more credit than sometimes I give them is that they, along with maybe EXP and maybe Ad Properties, were kind of the first brokerages to sort of say, like, we can position ourselves as like also technology companies and we can. Now, that's no disrespect to United. I don't know how long Dan Duffy has been like developing his own tech. I would just say that, you know, it kind of goes back to your original point as to like, if everyone is sort of doing this technology, then like, what is the differentiator? And is this something, you know, because it it seems to me like other brokerages are sort of like, then more like gesturing toward technology, but are like, uh, like, we cannot like spend all this, like, we cannot have another four hour meeting about tech here. Like, we just got to outsource it. We just got to do something like I feel like almost like Douglas Elliman sort of has that approach of kind of like, look, we're not a tech company. We like outsource a lot of stuff. Like, I think it was anywhere. The former Realogy, Ryan Gorman, I think famously said at an Inman conference, like developing your own tech in-house is a nightmare, like that kind of thing. So there are brokerages like taking somewhat of a different tack of like, look, we're going to provide this, but, you know, we're not going to like lose sleep over this. And then, you know, there's Compass, EXP, Ad Properties, United, Keller Williams, probably that are more in the camp of like, still, at least in public facing statements, like saying that this is kind of what differentiates us. And again, no, not to give short shrift to United or other kind of growing companies, they might actually be doing something different. I would though just like finish by saying that like, one of the reasons that like technology was discussed so much was that. The idea was that these companies, when they went public, they would be considered technology companies by Wall Street. And Wall Street would look at these companies and be like, their tech platform is so sophisticated that they can transcend real estate cycles. And so even if the market right now may be kind of like funky because of rising mortgage rates and other factors, fear of a recession, you know, their technology can somehow transcend it in terms of helping agents generate leads or whatever else. And Wall Street is not thought that way at all. Like Compass is valued the same way that Anywhere is valued, the same way that Remax is valued, you know, as a real estate company, like their stock. Uh, Refkin said, Robert Refkin, their CEO said like, uh, you know, over a year ago before they would go public, their stock would trade at about $25 a share. It's trading right now at about 4 or $5 a share. So... Wall Street has not bought what these companies are selling. And so the last kind of group to sell it to is agents. Yeah, yeah, I know. And and that's definitely notable looking at stock prices for all of these firms. So um, I want to, I you know, I want to get into something else because we are short on time. But you recently wrote a two-part article on the state of American home building. And mm-hmm. you you talked a lot about home builder sentiment, which is somewhat negative overall. So talk to me a little bit about what you uncovered during all of your research and interviews for this article. Yeah, sure. So I guess by way of background, 2021 was a record year 
for home building. Like it was the most new home sales in the US. Um, I believe since 2006, I quote somebody in the article saying that like the margins of publicly traded home building companies, these are like Lennar, which is a Miami based company or KB Homes, which is based in Los Angeles, like their margins uh, were the highest, like they made basically the most money they had ever made in the 21st century. And so, and it was a record orders, record sales, all that kind of stuff. But even in 2021, these home builders were complaining because they were saying, we could be doing so much more. There's so much demand out there. Mortgage rates are so low and inventory so low that we could be buying even, you know, we could be selling even more homes. And so now fast forward to now in the state of American home building is in a situation where these companies are still basically fulfilling orders that were made back in 2021. And so they're doing like great in terms of like revenue, orders, profits. They're doing fantastically. But then this, the, where the sentiment comes in is that I think there's just nerves that the market is changing so much in terms of you know, fears of a recession, um, the rising interest rates that, you know, it can seem like things are like bad, but it's more of like a fear that things will become bad than like that things are actually bad, at least specifically for home building. And that's kind of the dynamic that I look at because in some facets of home building, like lumber prices, things are actually better than they were a year ago. And there's more inventory now than there was a year ago. And you know, there's, you know, there's shortage of demand in terms of like new home buyers at like the $400,000 price range. I mean, and, and I'm just strictly talking about home building companies. I don't mean to suggest like the American housing economy is healthy or great or anything, but strictly in terms of the home builders, you know, they're doing very well and yet they're nervous. And so one thing I would just finally add about all that is that you know, there's a question sort of with sentiment, whether it's consumer sentiment or builder sentiment or the sentiment of a company, like is feeling bad sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because, you know, you read these articles, you know, on Housing Wire and the Wall Street Journal that are like consumer sentiment at its lowest level since 1952 or something like that. And it's like, how seriously should I take this? And that's the same thing with home builder sentiment is that like, well, they must know they're the home builders. So does this necessarily mean that the home building economy will go bad or are they just overly pessimistic? And are there, are there some areas of this, of the country that um, are more positive than others as far as the, the home builders? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think that sometimes tend to talk about this stuff kind of like conceptually and right. Like people are building homes in some places and not building as many homes in others. And I would just say that like the Florida markets, John Burns of John Burns Real Estate Consulting has these like very like, you know, easy to use, easy to read um, maps each month that basically show these areas are strong. These areas are slow. These areas are normal. Throughout 2021 and into 2022, Florida, very strong. I don't know if you're stepping outside, Tracy, and seeing the home building, but Orlando is a very strong market. Uh, Miami is a very strong market. And then you look up along the Atlantic coast and like those markets are still pretty strong, like Charlotte, 
even all the way up to like New York is strong. So the East Coast is strong. The Southwest obviously is a very dynamic and fast changing market, but there's still a lot of home building in Arizona, in San Diego. And then where you're seeing things that are a little slower, the West Coast has slowed down a bit, Seattle, the Bay Area, and then sort of places where there's less migration to or that were kind of outliers at times in terms of like price escalation, like a place like Minneapolis or Boise, Idaho, for example, that was like crazily growing during the pandemic is now ebbing a bit. Do they do any of those um, that are growing a little slower have regulations in place that kind of, I don't want to say prohibit home building, but aren't home builder friendly? Uh, And maybe you haven't really done research on that, but I'm just curious if that's part of the reason or um, if a lot of it is just the the net migration and, and what's going on in some of those areas. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. I think, I mean... Yeah. And that's a really good point because I think that like home building is like totally defined by local zoning laws. Like, you know, this is an issue, like we talk about mortgage rates and like, well, the Federal Reserve indirectly like sets mortgage rates or like other like sort of like centralized actors more. But with like home building, it's like local zoning boards and like what they can approve or disapprove. And so part of the reason that home building is, you probably know more about this than I do, but like part of the reason home building is like bigger in a place like Florida is just sort of, you know, there's not as many limits as to where you can build. And that's the case. And obviously like the classic example is Houston, like no zoning in Houston can build a house there anywhere. And so conversely, you do have places like Seattle, Minneapolis, Bay is, you know, the classic example of like a lot of local restrictions in terms of building. And, you know, some of that is like noble minded in terms of like environmental issues or historic preservation issues. Some of it is less noble minded. Like I have a really nice house and the property values keep rising and I don't want this riffraff near me. So it's a mix. But regardless, I think a lot of times in sort of times of economic tumult, you see sort of on the West Coast cities and the Northern cities that have more zoning restrictions, the market slowing down. Yeah. And I think there was a news story. I can't remember who it was. It was a famous, um, famous person. I want to, I want to say it was Drake or someone who ended <laughs> up, or maybe, no, maybe it was Dave Chappelle. Actually, I think it was Dave Chappelle who managed to um, get, let's see, they were going to build a housing community somewhere. I don't remember all the details about it. They were going to build a housing community and he managed to get them to back off and not, not build that community. And I don't remember all the details of it, but I thought it, it was interesting because I don't know, maybe it was low income housing, maybe it was, I I don't know what it was, but I thought, my first thought just reading a headline is, well, why would that be a problem? So I have to do more research into it, but I just thought that was an interesting, an interesting one too, as far as restrictions on home building and the influence people have in, in reducing some of those communities within their own areas. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, obviously, I don't know the specific Dave Chappelle situation, but, you know, I would say that, like, 
it is very hard because like, I'm sure like whatever the issue is and sort of like, I remember when I lived in Koreatown in the Los Angeles neighborhood, they were going to like put a homeless shelter into Koreatown and there was a lot of local opposition and like zooming out, you know, 30,000 feet, you know, it's ridiculous that they would have opposed the homeless shelter. Like Los Angeles has uh, thousands of homeless people and they need a place to, you know, be safely sheltered. But then like on the very, very local level, the, you know, folks who are, uh, you know, migrated to Koreatown are like, well, why are we saddled with this homeless shelter when Beverly Hills isn't being or Bel Air isn't being or something like that. And so it's sort of, it's these dynamics when like, when you really zoom in, it's like, oh, it's kind of understandable why they might be opposed to this project or that project. But then like zooming out, it's like, oh my goodness, like we have this huge American housing crisis and like all of these people who are homeless or or, you know, like have homes, but can't afford to become home buyers or can't afford to live near where they work. And so there's like this macro and micro and, you know, I mean, and, and that's housing policy is like never really reconciled that like federal versus local. And, and that's sort of the crux of home builders is that home builders are always dealing with kind of, you know, macro demand, but then sort of micro issues of like, is the local zoning board going to approve this? Is there going to be a truck that's going to be able to transport ready mixed concrete here? Is there going to be enough construction labor around for me to build this house? So it's this real, like, it's, it's a very nuanced world because it's this real mix of sort of global and national issues and local issues. Yeah. And I did pull up the Dave Chappelle. So um, <laughs> it was, there was plans to build, according to this article on blackenterprise.com, they, there were plans to build a massive housing development on a 53 acre property near Chappelle's home in Ohio. One acre would have been used for affordable housing and Chappelle opposed that during a public hearing. And then he um, threatened to pull his comedy club and restaurant in Yellow Springs if they did not stop the project. So he, I think he ended up buying several acres in order to, let's see, at least 19 acres, it looks like. He bought at least 19 acres of the land um, from the developer in order to stop them from building the houses adjacent to his home. So, and I don't want to make this negative about Dave Chappelle. He may have had some very good reasons for doing that. I don't know. Um, but I just thought it was it was interesting when there is such a need for affordable housing and only one acre was being used for it, according to this article. You know, I don't know anything more about the housing development. So, yeah. Yeah. And there are stories like that. I mean, that's a very like, it sounds like, you know, very pointed example, but there are stories like that, you know, in Long Island, in the Bay Area, in Los Angeles, you know, stories of sort of, you know, when it comes down to like actually building affordable housing or a mixed use project, um, or just sort of any, any housing, sometimes just market rate housing, you know, people are like, yeah, like, I mean, there's still a lot of not in my backyard for lack of a better term, you know. Yeah. Well, the this article that um, you and Brooklyn wrote will be live on the site. Um, it's a two-part article. So uh, I just want our readers to make sure they look for it. And thank you so much for, for joining the podcast today. 
How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to HousingWire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.